if you uh, have your Bible or are getting a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 8 as we are in our Gospel of John series this morning. So while you're turning there, I'm just going to pray one more time as we get into Scripture. Father, now we ask that you would speak to us through the Scriptures and that we would gain understanding of the things that are intended to be understood from this particular piece of Scripture from John chapter 8. Now, God, we pray for our ability to comprehend and that we would listen to the Holy Spirit as we are unpacking the scriptures, that your word would come to us and bring comfort where that is needed, conviction where we need that. God, minister to us from the word that we might grow into the men and women you've desired us to be. In Jesus' name, we said together, amen, amen, amen. We are in John chapter 8. Happy Father's Day again. A couple dad jokes because that's what you do on Father's Day. What do you call a fish without an eye? Oh, somebody knew it. But you don't know this one. Why can you not hear a pterodactyl go to the bathroom? Oh, stop. The P is silent. Oh, man. Well, maybe I need to look a little further on the internet for uh, dad jokes that nobody has ever heard of. Um, A lot of you men, though, I know have a a big steak or a cheeseburger or a burrito waiting for you. So uh, in order for brevity, um, I'm just going to get right to the point. We're in John chapter 8, and I want to focus our attention on the grace of God this morning. So I'm going to table that as the main point of John chapter 8. But before we do that, I do have to just make a quick mention about John chapter 8. How many have a translation in the Bible with some footnotes at this place in John chapter 8? So this brings us to this concept of textual criticism, which is essentially the the study of the trustworthiness and authority of Scripture. And the majority of our modern translations might say something to this effect for John chapter 7, 53 to chapter 8, verse 11. The footnote reading, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John chapter 7, verse 53 to John chapter 8, verse 11. Um, So... Many of you have that footnote? Okay, so essentially this is the deal. Um, it's agreed by most scholars in this area, men uh, living in, in, in past, D.A. Carson, Bruce Metzger, Leon Morris, Andreas Kostenberg, etc., that they agree that based on the most accurate Greek manuscripts, it's probably correct that this piece of John chapter 8, 753 to 811, doesn't belong here. Um, Now, what's a preacher to do when he's preaching from a piece of scripture that doesn't belong in the text? Uh, Well, uh, just to give you solace, there's also a great deal of scholarship that says, although we do agree mostly that this doesn't belong here, it is an actual historic account that was probably authored and written by John. So this actually happened The question is just more of where and when does it belong in John's gospel? So um, I'm of the persuasion the story belongs, maybe just not here. Most of the ancient church fathers did not include John 7, 53 to chapter 8, verse 11. Um, And also um, the, the text, if you just read it, cutting out that piece flows pretty nicely without it here. But we are gonna come under the assumption that this belongs to the people of God. It's a story that actually happened, and it's a a powerful truth about the grace of Jesus Christ over this woman's life. So hopefully that makes sense. If you're interested in more, I'll recommend a couple of books if you're really into textual criticism kind of reading. Um, There's an older book by uh, 
uh, the British scholar F.F. Bruce called New Testament Documents, the New Testament Documents, and then a more recent book by Paul Wagner called A Student's Guide to Textual Criticism of the Bible. But that said, we're just going to come at this story as a historical and factual uh, story of the grace of God. So John chapter 7, verse 53, then all went home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? Well, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What a powerful story of the grace of God. I'm glad that it got included, aren't you? It's a true factual historical event powerfully illustrating the grace of God. Some of the early church fathers, Ambrose and Augustine, uh, to name a few, actually were quite bothered by this piece of text because they believed that it actually seemed that Jesus was being light on sexual immorality or even permissive of it. And I like what C.S. Lewis wrote on this very subject out of his great work, Mere Christianity. He writes, If anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity sexual sin, as a supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasures of power, of hatred. For there are two things inside me. There are the animal self and the diabolic self. And the diabolic self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it is better to be neither. I like that. <laughs> so Jesus is dealing with these two types, the self-righteous prig, as a, a great old Brit would call him, and this group of self-righteous prigs and a prostitute, or at very least, a sexually immoral woman. And Jesus treats the situation with a very shocking, scandalous, exceptional amount of grace. In other words, as Paul said it, where sin increased, grace increased even more. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. These religious leaders thought that they had Jesus trapped. That's what they were trying to do. They had a woman who was caught committing adultery, and they had the law of Moses against him to say, 
What will you do with a woman like this? Leviticus 20, verse 10, the law did say if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So if Jesus lets this woman off, it appears that he's against the law of Moses. But if he has her stoned, it doesn't look like he's very gracious. And there is, of course, into this context, the glaring question, it takes two to tango to commit adultery. Why is only the woman here? Where is the man? The law said they were both to be in front of the judicial court, the religious court, if they were going to be condemned. See, these men were not looking for righteous vindication. They were playing a religious game. And Jesus will beat them at their own game. What he does shocks everybody. You never know what Jesus is going to do. Pretend like you didn't know this story. You're thinking the rabbi is stuck. There is no right answer. He can't say this or that. But Jesus doesn't say anything. He goes down to the dirt and he just starts writing. Now everybody's curious, like what is he doing? What is he writing? What is this? Why being asked a question, does he just ignore them, go down to the ground as if he hasn't heard a word they said or seen the situation as he just begins to write in the dirt? Well, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13 says something very interesting. Lord, you're the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Now listen to this. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Maybe Jesus wrote this. It wasn't very long before this in John chapter 7 that Jesus had declared himself on that last day, the great day of the feast. He said, if any of you are thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost will come torrents, rivers of living water. This he spake of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had invited the thirsty to drink. And as Jeremiah said, this group who will be written in the dust had forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. I'm guaranteeing you this group of jokers were not coming to Jesus for living water. So maybe Jesus was writing their names on the ground. But whatever Jesus did, the next thing he does, he rises up again and he looks at them and says these words. He says, okay, those of you who are without sin, and the Greek may say, those of you who are without the same sin, throw the first stone. And then he stoops down and starts writing again. Deuteronomy Chapter 17, verse 7 says that in the, a case where an adulterer and adulteress are caught in their sin, that the hands of the witnesses or accusers must be the first to throw a stone. So Jesus was in accordance to the law. He's saying, okay, if you think you can do this, there is no man in the situation here, so that's already off. But those of you without the, first, without the same sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. Then he goes back down and starts writing for the second time. It's that second writing that's interesting because after he stoops the second time, he sends everybody home. They drop their rocks and walk away. They no longer have the gumption to, 
to, uh, to slay this woman, to stone this woman, whatever it was that Jesus wrote in the dust that day, it cleared the accusers. It caused the religious prigs to drop their rocks and go home. My pastor used to suggest that it was possible that maybe he even wrote their names and the name of a female next to it. Or he wrote their names and a a, a verse or their names and a sin they had committed and it was in that moment that they realized if I am not without the same sin or sin, then I can't throw a stone at this woman. This is crazy. They all had to leave and Jesus clears the deck. And we come to perhaps one of the most important aspects of the story that I want to really drive home this morning, and that is the subject of how Jesus deals with sinners. How does Jesus deal with people? We have to know that, Emmaus, because we have to know how God deals with you and you do wrong, and we need to know how we ought to deal when people do wrong. If Jesus deals, then that's how I'm dealing, and I just need to know how he deals. What does he do when people are doing the thing that they ought not to do, when they commit the forbidden act? What does Jesus do? Well, there's a few things I want to mention. The first one is he sends your accusers away. That's one of the first things. Before Jesus even deals with this woman caught, he deals with those who are accusing her. And we all have accusers that were against us. There are basically three sources of accuser in all of our lives. People, the devil, and your own stinking brain. You get accused constantly by those three groupings. Somebody, something spiritual, or yourself. You have bad self-talk. Now, let's not be silly here. Don't misunderstand. In doing life together as a loving community, there are times for a loving rebuke. Sometimes we have to talk to each other about things in each other's lives that are off, but there is a difference between a loving rebuke and an accusation. And you can tell the difference between loving rebuke and an accusation in the approach and the purpose for which someone is coming to you. And I want to just draw a difference between the two so that we're all clear when we're dealing with one another and we're having other people come against us that we can say, no, that's, that's a hateful accusation. No, that's a loving confrontation. Loving rebukes, I need those. I'm not always right. I need friends who got my back who say, bro, like I just, I love you too much not to say something here. But what I don't need and I need to learn how to reject is harmful accusations. Whether they're from me and my own crazy headspace or there's the demonic realm, the fiery darts of the evil one, Ephesians chapter six, or it's a person who is in my life who is putting these accusations. So I wanna have us think about what's the difference between an accusation and a loving rebuke. So here's a few things I, I would have you note. Number one, uh, accusa- uh, excuse me, accusers seek to shame you. Loving rebuke seeks to heal you. Accusers will call you out publicly. Loving rebuke will come to you privately as Matthew 18 says that you should. If there's something going on between you and another person, you go to that person privately. Accusers are interested in seeing you punished. Loving rebuke is interested in seeing you restored. Accusers confront you apart from relationship. Loving rebuke comes from a place of relationship. I say this all the time. You have to earn the right to rebuke people. If I don't have a relationship with you, then you're coming to me cold calling and you are just a sin sniffer. 
You are just someone who thinks that is your job to police morality. And I'm, I'm not listening to that. Like there are some times without relationships, someone can say, hey, I'm just concerned about this. But if you're going to be an accuser or someone who's going to even lovingly rebuke me, then we have to have a relationship. I, I, I speak things to people as I have to, but we have to base that off some relational capital. If there be no relational capital or you're not willing to have relational capital. See, sometimes people come to me and they're like, man, there's something wrong with somebody. You need to do something about it, Brian. And I'm like, okay, like, I get that. But, but you know, you could do something about it too. But you don't want to because you don't want to get involved. You just want to say, that's wrong. Someone's got to deal with it. I'm like, you know, if you're going to get in it, you better get in it. Like, like if someone is, is, is struggling with something, the Bible says if someone is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, Galatians chapter 6, should restore that brother. Come to him in a spirit of meekness. Humble yourself and restore somebody, not rebuke in the sense to shame and do it in public and, and, and your, 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 your main purpose is for healing and restoration. And so whether it be the devil, it be your own head, or it be people, it's, it's important for us to understand the difference. Loving rebukes are important. We have, to, we have to be a community that can talk to each other about hard stuff. And if you're easily offended that anytime anybody says anything to you that's just not encouraging and fun, you'll be like, I'm leaving Emmaus. Well, hold on. But we also want to be eight people who fight against accusations with you and for you and help you to understand the difference. Is this an accusation or a loving rebuke? Um, and we war against accusations just as Jesus does, sending the accusers away. Second thing in, in the way we think about how Jesus deals with people when they're wrong Secondly, number two from this story, he frees you from condemnation. Now, I love this brief encounter, very brief encounter that Jesus has with this woman after these religious rock throwers walk away. Notice again, verse 10, after they were gone, Jesus, verse 10, straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Now, condemnation is something that we all from time to time deal with. And the Bible says in Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ, Romans 8.1, Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, what is condemnation? Condemnation, defined in the dictionary, strong disapproval, blame, or to be sentenced to punishment. Now, oftentimes in the life of a follower of Jesus, you can be under condemnation, a, a sense of strong disapproval, this overriding sense that I just don't think God approves of me, or this, this, this concept being blamed, this concept your sin being thrown at you, blamed for things, or a, a, being sentenced to punishment, an idea that, that punishment awaits me. And, and, and the Bible says there is now therefore none of that. Let's just get rid of that. Because of what Jesus did, you don't have to live in condemnation any longer. Let the church say, that's your cue. Um, many of the people, though, that, that we deal with, that I deal with, are dealing with feelings of condemnation. And we get to pronounce the gospel of freedom from condemnation. You don't have to be condemned 
anymore because Jesus doesn't condemn you. He doesn't blame you. He's not disapproving of you and you are not awaiting punishment. Can we just get that clear right now, y'all? Like God isn't disapproving of you. He's not blaming you and he's not punishing you. He took care of all that with Jesus. That's the gospel truth. Now, that said, Jesus tells this woman that he sent away the condemners and he doesn't condemn. So you see what Jesus does? He plays role of, of, in two ways in our lives. He is both our defense attorney. The Bible says we have an advocate with the Father, which is, the word is defense attorney, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So he's defense attorney. He defends you against accusation and condemnation, but he is also the judge. He's the just and the justifier. So he has the right to say, you're not condemned. Now, if someone says that to me and they're not the judge, they can say it on behalf of the judge, but they can't say it with authority. When Jesus says you're not condemned, he is both defense attorney and judge. And as he steps into both of those places, he wields the authority over my life to say, I defend you against accusation and condemnation, and I have the right to because I am the judge of all the earth. See, Jesus isn't just the one who stands up for me when God is angry. No, God was in Christ reconciling us. So Jesus is the judge. And if he says, where are they? Where are those who condemn you? They're not here anymore. I don't condemn you either. You don't have to be condemned because of Jesus. Now, we want to condemn condemnation in your life. So here are a few ways, a few voices of condemnation that we want to stand against. And if you are hearing any of these right now in this moment, I just want you to renounce this and we want to condemn this voice in your life. If you're hearing any of these condemning phrases, I'm not good enough to follow Jesus. No one is good enough to follow Jesus, but God has made you good. We condemn that kind of condemnation. No one needs to feel that way anymore. What about this one? I'm a loser. I've made some mistakes in my life. That equates to my identity. I'm a loser. Nope. The Bible doesn't speak that way about you. We condemn that kind of thinking. You win. You're beloved. You're not a loser. I've committed this sin too often. God can't forgive me for this again. But the Bible says where sin abounds, where sin increases, grace increases more. Grace is more than you could ever sin. You could never out-sin grace. shouldn't try, but you can. If only I could change, God would finally accept me. You ever felt that way? I just want to be better for God. And if I was better for God, maybe he'd really love me. Look, he loved you when you were a wreck. When he picked you, you weren't doing anything right. You were not seeking after him. And he said, I set my love on you at that moment. If he loved you at your worst, then anything is an improvement. God's love is not conditional that way. What about this word of condemnation? I'm never gonna change. That's a lie. I condemn that condemnation in your life. Some of you listen to this one. The hard things in my life are because God is punishing me. That's wrong. God doesn't punish you. You will never be punished by God. You might be disciplined, like he might chase you. That's not punishment. The hard things in your life 
do not equate to God's anger toward you. So we stand with you in Jesus to condemn condemnation in your life. And you might say, well, Brian, I got one that you didn't list. Then great, we condemn that one too. (laughs) We stand with Jesus and look at you in your worst state. I mean, could this woman's life get any worse? She was being humiliated in front of a crowd that Jesus was teaching. She was probably naked or very not very clothed, like maybe a sheet wrapped around her, standing in front of a bunch of patriarchal religious prigs who were saying, kill this woman. That's like the worst day of your life right there. It doesn't get worse than that. And Jesus says, watch this. And he systematically rids all accusation and condemnation from this woman's life. And then he tells her, I don't condemn you. So her worst day became one of the best days of her life. Because she heard the God who made her say, I don't care what everybody else is saying. I don't condemn you. And if I don't, they can't. If I don't, I'll stand up for you. I will defend you. Now, good Christian men and women defend people. Don't attack people. We defend them. Now, it doesn't mean that we play fast and loose with morals, but at the end of the day, we stand up for people here. We are a church that sticks up for people. Like I've got a rule at the Fowler house, like one Fowler's getting messed with, you all better get in the fight. I won't punish anybody for jumping on that pile. I don't care. Like I'll stand up to anybody saying, hey, look, I told my kids, pop somebody who's messing with the Fowler kid. You just, we, don't, we, we defend each other. We stand up for each other. That is the code of ethic. Jesus stands up. He is Jesus, our brother, our Savior, our God. And that same jealous spirit should reside in us. We should be angry when the demons are harassing people. We should be angry when people are living under condemnation. We should be able to speak over people. He does not condemn you. I know you're being accused, but we're going to war against accusations. We're clearing out the accusers. Condemnation? No, no, we fight against that. You're not condemned. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the third and final point has to be said about Jesus dealing with people when they sin. The third point is this. He beckons you to leave your life of sin. So let's not be misguided here. Jesus is not passive or permissive as it concerns things in my life that are unhealthy for human flourishing. Just as angry and as aggressive and as defending as Jesus is against accusation and condemnation, he is also standing against those things in your life that don't lead to your flourishing, that are unhealthy practices for you. He wars against those things in my life. He wars against my destructive behavior, sexual behaviors, emotional behavior, social behaviors, spiritual behaviors that are contrary to human flourishing. And he'll say to me, go now and leave your life of sin. You don't have to live like this anymore. I mean, this woman was in some bad ways. And Jesus doesn't ignore that. But he doesn't do it while those guys are around. He says, now that it's just you and me, let's talk about some of the unhealthy things that you're doing. How wise is it to live like this? And he says, let me invite you not condemned, but leave the life of sin that you've been involved in. 
And I just desire our church community to be clear on how Jesus deals with people. What Jesus does on our behalf. And just to know, I just want you to know that there's abundant grace. That the riches of God, the unmerited, unearned favor of God is so plentiful you could never wear it out. You cannot weary the Holy One of Israel. He keeps on giving grace. So he, de- he doesn't tire of you the way that you tire of you. He doesn't tire of you the way that you tire of others. He doesn't get exasperated like you to get exasperated. There's always more grace. And he keeps pouring it on and pouring it on and pouring it on. And some of you religious in here that are like, no way, that can't be. Yeah, it is. That's the gospel. I know it offends you. I'm glad. Because it should offend you because grace is radical and scandalous and it doesn't make sense and one plus one equals five and how does this math work and that doesn't seem fair. Favor ain't fair. God shows his favor and says, I love whom I love and I give grace to the sinner. And the worst of you in here, he would say, grace, 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 now go leave your life of sin. I don't condemn you. I send away your accusers. Now turn to me. And the minute you turn to Jesus, he just keeps pouring on abundant grace no matter what you've done and so for some of you you know i think you don't always feel safe coming to anybody but you can always run to jesus for grace but i do want to say this we've got to be a kind of community that treat people like jesus would just ask yourself in the way you're treating people when they do the wrong thing can I imagine Jesus doing this? Is the spirit of Jesus that lives within me, is, is this bearing witness? Should I come at this person this way? And, and you know, there is, there is the, the letter of the law, the, the, the exact letter, and then there is what is called the spirit of the law. And Jesus had the spirit of the law. The Pharisees were like, you have to obey Sabbath. It has to be Saturday, and this is exactly what you must do. And Jesus like, y'all don't get it. See, me and the father, we got more going on than you guys do with him. I know what he meant when he said that. You don't get it. The Sabbath is for helping, not hurting. God's law is for loving and guiding into human flourishing. And so as a church community, we've got to be able to reconcile the gospel for ourselves and then treat others with generous gospel. We get to demonstrate God's grace to to people who feel far from God. This has got to be a church of grace. Just continue to be gracious to people. And gracious doesn't always mean you never say anything when people are doing things that are unhealthy. It's just, you say, hey, listen, I don't think this is healthy and I think God would have much more for you, but there's so much grace over anything you do wrong. And we get to war against accusation in people's lives. I mean, listen to the people you're talking to and if you even pick up on accusations, start praying for them and speaking against those accusations, those accusing forces. We get to declare again and again there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We get to fight for people who are being condemned. We get to call people out of destructive behaviors and say as Jesus did, go now and leave your life of sin. You're free to not do this anymore. We get to declare the gospel that because of Jesus we have been made right with God. You know this word grace is the the Greek word is charis. And it it means this. This is why you get to be a gracious person. The lexicon translation of charis is this. The divine influence on the heart and its reflection in the life. People who have received grace should be gracious. 
If you're not a gracious person, it's because you have not received grace. And if you've received grace, you ought to give grace. When God has influenced your heart, when Jesus has been abundantly generous with you, you can't help but be generous. You can't help but be gracious. You can't help but exude the love and grace of God. So I, a few years ago, before I'd ever heard of this preacher guy named Matt Chandler, how many guys have heard of Matt Chandler? Um, I like him. He's a good preacher. I'd, I'd, it was like four or five years ago, maybe more, I hadn't heard of him. But a friend of mine sent me a little YouTube clip, probably his most famous YouTube clip, like for people who like to watch sermon YouTube clips, like weirdos like me. Um, he, he, I'm going to show that. I'm going to let him finish my sermon for me. Um, but uh, the backstory on it before uh, we have it played is that uh, Matt and his friends were ministering to a 26-year-old single mother who was in the middle of an adulterous relationship. And they brought her to church for the first time. And uh, so when, when you listen to what he's going to say in this short little clip, realize the context that it's not his fury just over a bad gospel, but also he brought the adulterous woman to church. And, 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 and he, so he kind of wars against, you'll hear the, the, the anger in his voice against this. So let's play this right now and then I'll come back up. The minister got up and he said, today I want to talk to you about sex. And so I immediately go, uh-oh, this could be a problem. And, and he took a red rose and he smelled it and he showed how pretty it was. And then he threw it out into the crowd. He goes, everybody needs to smell this. There's about a thousand of us there, almost all of us college and high school. Smell the rose. I want you to smell it. I want you to touch it. I want you to see the texture in it. Do it, do it. And I'm going to teach. And, and then he began what honestly, up until this day, and this might have to do with my heart. I don't, I'm still wrestling. Um, was one of the worst, most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that I ever sat through. It, it was fear-mongering at, the, at its best. It was, um, you don't want syphilis, do you? And everybody's smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lip, and you, right? And so I'm just thinking, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and then as it wraps up, he goes, where's my, where's my rose? Where, where, where is it? Where's, where's my rose? And, you know, some kid came up, the rose is just completely jacked up, it's broken, the things are off, the pedals are broken, and, and he lifts it up, and his big crescendo, I mean, his point is to hold up that rose and go, now who would want this? Who would want this rose? And I remember feeling anger, like real, legitimate, I want to hurt him, anger, and it was all I could do not to scream out, Jesus wants the rose! That's the point of the gospel! That Jesus wants the rose. That he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ won. You're not even teaching the basics of our faith. I love being a Christian because of stuff like this, that we get to be so phenomenally passionate about the love and grace of God for everybody, ruined and broken, to just be able to declare the message 
that Jesus loves the rose. He loves the broken and the ruined. And I want to just pray with us right now as the band comes back up and we're going to go into communion. But I want to pray for men and women here who feel unlovely, unlovable, and maybe are dealing with levels of condemnation and accusation that we want to say this morning, we believe that God's grace is sufficient for you. So if you're here this morning and you're really in the space of, man, I just need some prayer, I just want you to go ahead and stand up right now. I know it's a bold thing, but we want to pray over you because we want a war on your behalf. We want to be the kind of community that, that, that is able to preach the gospel to one another. And so if you would just stand, whether you follow Jesus, don't follow Jesus, not even sure where you land on the, the, the spectrum of, of Jesus follower, uh, just go ahead and look around. If anyone's standing up, they don't stand up alone. Get around some people. We're going to pray for uh, the grace of God. Anybody else just want to stand up? We're going to pray for you right now that the grace of God would just be in your life. Um, yeah, yeah, let's over here. Make sure our brother is, is being prayed for. Lay some hands over there. Anybody else just want to stand up, need, need some grace in your life, uh, feel like, uh, man, I don't know how Jesus could love me. Father, right now, I, I just pray for this moment. Um, for those who are standing and those who did not have the courage to stand for various reasons, maybe this environment or this, this way is uncomfortable to them. But God, I, I pray for those who have identified, even this morning, feeling like maybe this woman felt. Like all eyes are on me and I'm caught and I'm not right and I can't seem to get God's love and favor in my life. And, and Father, I pray that your gospel would overwhelm men and women right now, that your love would come now in, in a very real and tangible way that the gospel of Jesus would drive away accusations drive away condemnation, that abundant amount of grace would come, the kind of grace that brings people back to you, the kind of grace that lets people know that, that there's really nothing that you could do that, that could overcome the amounts of grace that are available in God, the amounts of unmerited favor and love. So God, I pray for our church community, for those who are standing receiving prayer, I pray that the gospel would be real, that the gospel would be known, that right now you would just speak over our brothers and sisters, that you would just say to them, I do not condemn you. You're free to now go live a different life than you've been living. You're free to walk away from this unhealthy life of sin and, and, and leaving the way of human flourishing. Father, bring grace here. Help us to be a gracious group of men and women who follow the leadership of Jesus. And we pray that you would just do a, a, a dramatic work in those who are standing to receive prayer right now. That the abundant grace of God will just be in the house in such a tangibly beautiful way. Thank you, God, for letting us preach this kind of gospel that I don't have to go around wagging fingers and condemning people. I don't have to be judge. I get to hear your judgment over those who are in Christ. They are not condemned and they're being beckoned to come away from unhealthy practices. So I pray for all of the goodness and all of the calling of Jesus away from unhealthy life practices to be upon us today. And we receive your grace in Jesus' name, amen, amen.